Before we get started with today's show, I'm here to tell you about Brez Coffee Company, made by gamers for gamers right here on the Gulf Coast in Pensacola, Florida. Do you like lighter medium roast? Then try the Necromedium Holy Grail Light or Stamina Boost. Or if you're like me and prefer darker roast, try the Critical Dark or the Coup Slayer Mocha Roast. But what if you can't pick just one? Then try one of their specialty sample packs, perfect for an all-night gaming or in the case of my fellow filmmakers, an all-night editing session. Forget about all the crappy coffee you've been buying at the grocery store and head on over to brezcoffeeco.com. Use the promo code DDE at checkout to get 10% off your order. Have you ever thought to yourself after listening to this podcast, why didn't Derek ask this question? Or why didn't he ask that question? I know I certainly have. Well, you get the chance to do that if you sign up for my Patreon at patreon.com slash ddiamondpodcast. You get the chance to ask guests of the show a question. If you're a fan of the top five list, you get the chance to vote on what the topic will be. You also get early access to episodes, accessibility to my film scripts, and so much more. And you can do so by heading over to patreon.com slash ddiamondpodcast. And we want to thank our patrons, Tim Spivey, Donna Diamond, and Shannon Williams. Thanks so much for your continued contributions. And now, on with the show. Welcome to the Derek Diamond Experience Podcast, where every week I take a look inside the world of film and television with those who have lived it and experienced it. I am your host, Derek Diamond, and coming up later on in the show, you'll be hearing my conversation with writer and script consultant Howard Kasner. And as a little bonus for this week, I'll be appearing on his podcast, The Pop Art Podcast, which I'll talk about a little bit later on in the show. But first, it's that time, it's the return of the top five list. I say this, I feel like every time I do this, one of my favorite aspects of the show, the monthly top five list that the Patreon subscribers vote on every month and they picked another great one. And this was this was fun in the sense that there are certain fandoms and things that I followed as a kid that when I think about them as an adult, it just takes me back to that time. And this was no exception Something that was very important to me as a kid, we're doing top five 90s Nickelodeon cartoons. So many great animated series from different networks were out in the 90s. I personally think the 90s was the best time for animated series. Those who grew up in the 80s would probably debate me on that. Those who grew up in the 2000s would probably debate me on that. But I'm a 90s kid and that's my opinion and I'm sticking to it. So... Top five 90s cartoons is what the Patreon subscribers voted on, and I had a blast doing this list because every time I came up with an option, like I, my top two were easy. I, that was an absolute no-brainer, but three through five were, were kind of difficult in the sense that when I would think of these shows, I just, is like it opened a floodgate of memories from my childhood. You know, I can remember sitting in my room, sitting in the living room of the house that we lived in when I was a kid, going over to my grandparents' house, going back into their bedroom to watch, you know, an hour plus of these shows. And there were some good live action ones too, but that's that could be its whole separate list and probably will be at some point in the near future. So 
for those who have never heard the top five list before, this is what happens. This is how it works. So I'm going to list my honorable mentions plus my five through one, why I put them where I did. And then I read the list of you, the viewers and the listeners, because every month when I announce what the top five list is going to be, I invite anyone who wants to submit their list. Just leave them in the comments of the Facebook thread and I will read them here on the show. And we got some good lists from quite a few people this month. So we're going to get right to it. My honorable mentions First up, The Angry Beavers. I remember when this show premiered and it had the Nickelodeon name attached to it. So, of course, I was going to check it out. But I feel like The Angry Beavers was a little underrated at the time. You know, you, you had Norbert and Daggett, almost like an odd couple type of relationship. You know, they build their own dam. They live together. It's very odd couple-like. And the banter was just amazing between those two so uh, that's why that's an honorable mention I still love the show but it, it it barely missed the cut Spongebob Squarepants and I might get flack for that not being in my top five I like Spongebob I think it's hilarious I love the characters but it also came out in a time that I was kind of out of the Nickelodeon phase of my life. You know, around the late nineties is when I started to move on to watch other things. Like it's when I started watching WCW and WWF started focusing more on watching live action shows, but I respect SpongeBob for its longevity. It's still going to this day. And a lot of people forget that it started in the nineties. It came out in 1999. So I, I, you gotta, you gotta give credit where credit's due, regardless if you like the show or not. Then my other is Ren and Stimpy. I liked it. I didn't watch it on a regular basis. This was one of the shows that I was actually discouraged from watching as a kid. So, of course, naturally that made me want to watch it even more. Uh, but it's it's fun. You know, I, I love the happy, happy, joy, joy song. You know, and that now that I say that, it's going to be stuck in my head for the rest of this episode. But I digress. But Ren and Stimpy is a fun show. My number five, this is a show that I, hardly anyone talks about when you talk about Nickelodeon, and that is Kablam, the variety show that would show on Nickelodeon on Friday nights, starred Henry and June as their host. It had a, a comic book type of look to it, but they would have different skits like Action League Now with motion, stop motion action figures. And it had almost like a Justice League type of feel to it. You had Prometheus and Bob, the old tapes with the alien and the caveman. I love the structure of the show and the fact that it offered something different than other shows on Nickelodeon at that time. So I I didn't really go out that much on Friday nights, or if I did, it was to play video games with friends. But if I was home... I was watching Kablam on a Friday night. So Kablam is my number five. Number four is Rugrats. Again, I might get flack for that not being at least in the top two. Here's my thing with Rugrats. I like it. I don't really dislike any episodes that I can remember from it. I think the characters are fun. I think it's 
pretty clever as far as the setting and everything. My grudge with the Rugrats all goes back to the Nickelodeon Kids' Choice Awards back in the 90s. They had the best show category, and I always wanted what is my number one choice, and I won't reveal it yet. I always wanted that to win, but it was always Rugrats that would take the award. And I got mad every year. So for a while, I was like, I hate Rugrats. I think it's overhyped, overrated. I really don't think that now. But I enjoyed these other shows that I'm about to say more. So send your, your comments to at D Diamond Podcast on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. But Rugrats is my number four. Number three is Hey Arnold. I remember going to see Harriet the Spy in the movie theater back in the day. And as a preview to the movie, they had an episode of Hey Arnold with very different color schemes and a little bit of a different animation than what we ultimately saw on TV every week. And I I was drawn to the almost realistic approach to it. You know, you felt like you would know kids like Rocco, or not, not Rocco, what am I saying? Like Arnold, Gerald, Helga, uh, Eugene, uh, Spike, Harold, you know, you, you felt like you would run into kids like that or you would know kids like that. And that was part of the appeal for that show. I thought the, you know, the, the very urban, jazzy type of music I thought was perfect for the show. It was just, it was fun. And I enjoyed every single episode. I liked seeing what kind of antics Arnold would get into. I think of, you know, the, the list he came up with for a kid's perfect Saturday and nothing went right. He had, you know, he was going to watch cartoons all morning. His alarm clock broke, so he slept through all of them. The milk had gone bad, so he couldn't have his favorite cereal. Everything he did went wrong. There's many other great episodes, but that's the one that comes to mind. Number two is Doug. and th This is, of course, pre Disney Doug, which that whole run to me was terrible, but I loved the Nickelodeon version of Doug for a lot of the reasons why I liked Hey Arnold. It was very relatable. You know, as a kid growing up in the 90s, you can relate to going through some of the same struggles that Doug Funny did as a kid in, in school. And again, with characters like Skeeter, uh, Patty... Roger Klotz. These were characters that you would likely encounter in real life as far as personality goes. You you would know a Roger Klotz in school. You would know a, a Patty. You know, every guy had that the girl that they, they had a crush on at some point during school. So it was very relatable. I loved his alter ego characters like Quail Man, uh, Smash Adams, his, I love the exaggerated imagination that he had where he would visualize just the worst possible thing that could go wrong. And every kid's done it. Even adults still do it to a point. I still do it to a point. You felt like you could relate to that show. And also, as a side note, watching Doug inspired me to keep a journal as a kid. I, I don't keep one now, but... I have a few journals from when I was, 
you know, a kid growing up around that time. So uh, still at my parents' house every now and then. If I go over there, I'll go through them and just think, uh, such a simpler time. But number one, it slipped earlier, and I hate myself for doing it, but it's Rocco's Modern Life. You know, it's... I love the humor, even though a lot of the innuendos went over my head as a kid. I go back and watch that show now and think, man, they got away with a lot on on a kid's network. But everything from the wacky characters and the interaction with, you know, Rocco, Heifer, Filbert, the Big Heads, the Chameleon Brothers, I, I just loved... It was so wacky and over the top, but as a kid, you loved it. It had all the goofy sound effects. It had, to me, cool-looking animation that looked different than some of the other Nickelodeon shows. A highlight of mine actually came years later, before Pensacon 2017, when I got to interview Carlos Alzaraki, the voice of Rocco, for this very show. And meeting him in person at Pensacon was still to this day one of my favorite celebrity interactions that I've ever had. So getting to pick his brain about being involved with that show and you know knowing in my mind, and it's kind of me being a bit of a fanboy, but knowing how important that show was to me and how much time I spent watching it was was really cool and one of my favorite moments from from doing this show for sure and there's there's a lot of great episodes you know I love the the wacky deli two-parter when Rocco Heffer and Filbert try to save the wacky deli show which was created by Ralph Bighead the son of Rocco's neighbors uh, my mom actually wrote a, a post about this on Facebook she responded to this thread about the the episode when Rocco and Spunky go to the grocery store because there's a 99.9% off sale, but it only runs through noon. They get all their groceries, and of course everything's trying to fight them and keep them from getting it. And as soon as everything's scanned and they hit the total button, it hits noon, so the price goes up and Rocco just loses his mind. And he he gets his sale. So, uh, so many great moments. I could... I could list them off, you know, all day, but Rocco's Modern Life is my favorite 90s Nickelodeon show, and it's one of my favorite cartoons of all time. You know, that's, that would be a much harder list to do is just top five, not just 90s cartoons, but just favorite cartoons from your childhood. Maybe we'll do that for a future episode, but that's going to do it for my list. Let's move on to everyone else's list that you all left. And as I said, I got quite a few, so thank you all for sending those. We're going to start things off with Kara Cassidy Thomas. Uh, her honorable mentions are Cat Dog, The Wild Thornberries, Rocco's Modern Life, and Ah Real Monsters. That's another good one, too. I liked Ah Real Monsters, and if it was on, I would watch it. But it was one that I would never really go out of my way to, like I never really knew what time All Real Monsters was coming on. So I didn't actively search for it. But not a bad show. Number five, Doug. Four is Rocket Power. I always associate Rocket Power, and this might be showing my age a little bit, but 
I took Rocket Power as that was the that was the big cartoon that came out around the time I stopped watching Nickelodeon because you know Rocco wasn't on anymore, Doug wasn't on anymore, Doug was already on ABC at that point. So a lot of the shows that I liked on Nickelodeon weren't on the air anymore. So I moved on to something else. And you know, taste changes, we mature and everything. So uh, that was around the time that Rocket Power came out. So I always associate Rocket Power with the end of my time watching Nickelodeon on a regular basis. Number three, Angry Beavers. Two, Rugrats. And number one is Hey Arnold. Uh, Jacob Sasser, number five, Hey Arnold. He lists Ninja Turtles as his number four. I think he took this as 90s and Nickelodeon. Which is funny because Ninja Turtles is now on Nickelodeon. And I don't know if they own the rights now to the original Ninja Turtles run. I'm not sure. I know it's not available to stream anywhere, which is shocking to me. Because I I would binge that. Like I, That would be on as like a background noise show for me. I love that cartoon. But number three is Rocket Power. Two Rugrats and number one SpongeBob. And yes, it does count as 90s because it was released in 1999. Jacob Craig, co host of the Open Micers podcast. Uh, honorable mentions to Freakazoid, Tiny Toons, and X Men. They aren't Nickelodeon, but they were definitely a huge part of my childhood. Number five, Hey Arnold. Four, Angry Beavers. Three, Doug. Two, Rugrats. And number one, Rocco's Modern Life. Brandon Rutledge, good fan of the show, Brandon Rutledge. Honorable mentions, Ren and Stimpy, Rugrats, and Cat Dog. A little shocked that Rugrats isn't, isn't on your list, sir, as far as being in the actual top five. His number five, Rocco's Modern Life. Four, SpongeBob SquarePants. Three, Doug. Two, Angry Beavers. And number one, Hey Arnold. Carlos Longoria, a.k.a. I Am The Rampage. Number five, Hey Arnold. Four, SpongeBob. Three, Rocco's Modern Life. Two, Rugrats. And number one, Rin and Stimpy. Thomas Carter Rochester. Uh, Rugrats, Rocket Power, Cat Dog, some solid space. Then Hey Arnold and Doug. Tim Spivey. Uh, his honorable mentions are All Real Monsters, Rocco's Modern Life, and Cat Dog. Oh, also Rocket Power. Number five, Rugrats. Four, Wild Thornberries. Three, The Angry Beavers. Two, Doug. And number one, Hey Arnold. Hey Arnold! Josh Shinnewerk. Number five, Hey Arnold. Four, Ah Real Monsters. Three, SpongeBob. Two, Doug. And number one, Rocket Power. Wade Vatican. Number five, Rocket Power. Four, Hey Arnold. Three, Rugrats. Two, Doug. And number one, Rocco's Modern Life. And he also throws in, wash your hands. Turn the page, wash your hands. Great, great reference there. And, uh, oh, I did want to throw this in. Jason Robbins, my co-host on the Nerd Cave Retro Show, he said the only Nickelodeon show he really watched was Ren and Stimpy, so that is his one through five. So, easy list there for, for Jason. But last but not least, Samantha Owens, number five, 
Can't decide between the wild thornberries, cat dog, and rugrats. Four, rocket power. Three, Doug. Number two, hey Arnold. And number one, SpongeBob. That is my wonderful fiance, Samantha Owens list. Uh, great list by everyone. Uh, I love the turnout. I love the variety. A lot of you had the same same shows, but just in different order. And there were a few different ones mixed in there. But that's what's great about the top five list. And I'm gonna probably going to come up with some type of a Halloween or horror-themed top five for October. I was thinking maybe top five horror movie characters. I think might be a fun discussion. But we'll uh, we'll see. For those of you who are subscribed to Patreon, you'll find out on October 1st what the options are. And then we'll, we'll go from there. So that's going to do it for the top five list. So now we're going to move on to my conversation with script consultant and writer Howard Kastner. And I was actually introduced to Howard through a mutual friend of ours, Steve Wise. Steve Wise has been on this show numerous times. He had went on uh, Howard's show, the Pop Art Podcast, uh, several months ago and actually told me back then that I should reach out to him and then also appear on his show. Well, when I was looking to find guests for you know, the next batch of recordings I was going to do, I remembered that message, so I reached out to him. He came on my show. I recently did his show, and it was a lot of fun. And I, I enjoy talking about the writing process because that's really where the movie is born. Like it's, yeah, the idea you could say is technically the beginning, but I think when you start putting it down on paper or in a digital document, that's where the story really begins. So it was fun to talk to with him about the little nuances and you hear hear some of his thoughts on the writing process. So it was it was very informative for me and hopefully you all enjoy it just as much as I did. So without further ado, here is my conversation with Howard Kasner. Welcome back to the Derek Diamond Experience Podcast, and this week it's my pleasure to welcome writer and fellow podcaster Howard Kasner to the show. Howard, how are you? Well, I think I'm doing fine today. It's nice here in Los Angeles. It's it's rather cool right now. Yeah, it's um, funny enough, the past, I've been to Los Angeles twice, once in March and once in November, and I swear that it was warmer in November than when I went in March, which that's is really... quite. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I was going to say that's quite possible. We don't really get winter, winter here until January even. So, uh, and August and September are our hottest months. Yeah, that's that's about how it is uh, here in Florida with us. You know, like it's April and even into early May can still be okay. Like it's warm but not hot. But normally late May through September is is like practically peak summer for us with August probably being the worst. And then September is still kind of warm in October. It starts to cool off October and November and like March and April are probably the four best months here. Otherwise it's just obnoxiously hot or obnoxiously cold. 
Ours is a bit more mellow than that throughout the year. It doesn't usually have, it, it usually isn't that extreme in weather. That's why a lot of people like to live here. Yeah. And that, that's, that's what I've heard, you know, and even, you know, growing up, that's what I heard about California and specifically Southern California is that the weather's pretty consistent for the most part. And that's what attracts a lot of people. So are you a lifelong LA resident? No, I moved here in 2001. I grew up in Corpus Christi, Texas, went to school at U of T at Austin, moved to Chicago for about 20 years and then moved here. Okay. Was it you wanting to be in film? Was that what drew you to ultimately go into Los Angeles? Sort of. I tried to make it in the theater in Chicago and wasn't particularly successful or wasn't really that successful at all. I had lost my job around 2000 and was having a hard time getting another one. I had it, my uh, theater career was, was stalled. So I was able to sell my condo and I decided to move to LA where I had a few friends at the time and try to make it as a screenwriter, which I didn't. <laughs> what was it about writing specifically that, that drew you to it? Writing in general? I just think I always had um, an ability to come up with interesting ideas and interesting stories. So, and eventually, what got me into playwriting, strangely enough, was the local theater in Corpus Christi was doing Sound of Music, and I went and saw it and loved it and sort of fell in love with the idea of writing for the stage, which is what I uh, primarily focused on for the next number of, say, 25 years or so. The irony is that I can't stand the Sound of Music anymore. <laughs> I think it's just a terrible, terrible musical on the stage. It's better on screen, but it's terrible on stage. But uh, then I don't think it's that a natural progression to move from trying to write for theater to trying to write for film, especially since I was constantly seeing films all my life. Uh, I think probably why I didn't go directly into film, which might have been a better idea, was that uh, screenwriters aren't treated very well in movies, but in theater, playwrights have the final say. It was interesting about the entire writing process, and it's what I learned when I wrote you know, my short film that I did a couple of years ago, that you're almost like you... People talk about film in some ways as like a sandbox, and there are different toys that you, know, you get to play with when you're in the sandbox. Whenever you're a writer, you create the sandbox, and you create all the toys and whatever is, you know, is in that story. You create the setting, the characters, all of it is all coming from your mind. Is that something that... You, you you kind of picked up as you realized this is something that you enjoyed doing? Well, I guess, I guess so. I'm not sure I really ever thought of it in that way. I just liked, first of all, I just liked making up interesting ideas and interesting stories. But then I moved on to trying to write things that had more 
depth beyond the story, uh, more things that were more philosophical, even, uh, you know, more, they were trying to say something about the characters in the world around them. Um, so I'm not sure it was quite that, but what you said does make me think of something I do get into arguments a lot with other filmmakers, screenwriters, producers, screenwriters tend to say we create the blueprints for a movie and i keep trying to tell them no that's that's utterly not true if you think it through blueprints are some of the last things created when you build a building you start with the design the design is always the very first thing so we create the design the screenwriters screenwriters create the design the director then has somebody draw up the blueprints and then the director builds the building, sometimes for better, sometimes for worse. But I, I just have these things I want to say. I mean, I write because I'm good at it. That's first of all. Flannery O'Connor always got uh, upset at people asking her, why do you write? And when she said, well, I'm good at it, they were very frustrated because they didn't think that was a good answer, wasn't what they wanted to hear. But first of all, I'm a writer because I'm good at it. I have that talent that's so that's why I write. But why I write what I write is a different question. And as I went along, I became more involved in theological and philosophical issues, existentialism, and postmodernism and things of that nature. What was it that drew you to write philosophical things specifically? Oh, probably my past and I suppose I don't want to over exaggerate it I mean uh, people have these ideas that there are these sudden moments of insight and I'm not saying those, those don't happen they do I suppose it was sort of a combination of growing up in a somewhat religious background fundamentalist and then having I don't want to say a crisis of faith because something that lasts 10, 15, 20 years, I'm not sure I can say, is a crisis. But once you start, once you have that background and then you start getting into people like Kierkegaard and uh, Sartre and Camus and existentialism in movies like what the French were doing when they brought it over with the New Wave and with Martin Scorsese and things of that nature, um, I became more interested in that. Why are we here? Why is there something instead of nothing? Is there any meaning to life? If there isn't any meaning, then what do you do? Um, also, one thing that I did in, in Chicago was I was one of the first gay writers who wrote about gay people without them, the without the issue without there being gay issues involved. I just wrote about gay people, <laughs> right. you know. And uh, so I also was in that a little bit ahead of the time in that area too. But I also wrote it from a very existential uh, point of view as well. What is the meaning of everything? What? How do we decide what is right and wrong, what's good and bad? And I still struggle with that. And it's kind of backtracking a little bit. It's interesting that you bring up the the blueprint argument, and that being that writers come up with the design, and the design comes before the blueprint. Which 
I did, I'll admit I didn't even think of that too. You know, I would have been one of those that said, "Oh yeah, the the writers are they come up with the blueprint of the film, but you have to have the actual design before you make the blueprint because the blueprint is built off yeah. of the design." So and that that's, that's very interesting. In movies, the blueprint is really, and now I can't think of the word for it, getting to the age where words don't immediately come. But um, it's when you're drawing out the various scenes. Uh, the Storyboarding? The storyboarding. Storyboarding is the blueprint. Yes. And screenwriters don't storyboard. In fact, directors often don't storyboard. They're actually people. Not so much anymore because of the way things have changed with the way movies are made and how they're financed, et cetera, et cetera. But there were people who did nothing but storyboard. You know, the directors would go to them and say, storyboard this, and they would work it out. But Hitchcock, for example, was very big on storyboarding. But he would sometimes have, I think, other people more storyboard things out, uh, and then he would work from that. So... Yeah, the directors build the building, but they build it according to our design until they start redesigning it. And often, I want to say often that's where things go wrong. That's why we have so many bad movies, because the director takes the screenplay and completely sometimes demolishes it or thinks he's a better writer than the screenwriter. And I would say that's why we have so many bad movies, but we probably have as many bad movies as we have plays and novels and things like that. So it's, I, I can't say that that's the reason why every art form has the vast majority of every art form is very good. If, if I suddenly said, if I had my way and I could say that screenwriters always have the last word in movies, that you cannot change anything they wrote uh, or anything they wanted done, uh, and you couldn't do that, like on stage, you'd still have as many good and bad movies as you do today. It's just the way it is. Yeah, and that's that's also you know interesting as well because you know you you watch movies whether they're in theaters or you know at home with all the streaming services we have now, and it really makes you think: How does a movie end up being bad? Well, there's several factors in that and I, I think the what I tell people is like no one sets out to make a bad movie you know whenever a movie is made all intents are there to try and make it as good as possible because no one wants to make a bad product whereas movies or whatever the case may be but it, it, it's interesting to see what factors along the way contribute to that I slightly disagree with that I and I've been had these uh discussions on Facebook as well. When someone says no one sets out to make a bad movie, I see that's actually not the problem. Yes, no one starts out to make a bad movie. The problem is a huge number of people start out to make a movie and they don't care if it's bad or good. They just want to make a profit and that's all they care about. So yeah, I guess you could say they don't start out to make a bad movie, but in many ways, not caring whether it's bad, a bad or, or a good movie is almost the same as uh, setting out to make a bad movie. Kind of like the what you permit, you promote kind of thing. Right. Yeah. No, I, I, don't, I don't disagree with that at all. And I, again, that's, you know, something that I think we do see is that, you know, m- money does play a big factor in movies or not. It's like I, I'll use, when I think of that, I instantly think of 
the Fast and Furious movies. Now, I haven't seen all of them, so I can't say whether they're all bad movies or they're good movies, but they make money. Well, so people keep going to see them. The thing that, though, you also have to remember here is that in any art form, you have to have two things coming in at the same time. You have to have an influx of money. Mm-hmm. If you don't have an influx of money, then, of course, the art form dies because there's no way to sustain it. At the same time, you have to have uh, artistic ingenuity, uniqueness, originality, people taking chances, people breaking the rules. If you don't do that, then an artistic form stagnates and dies of entropy. So you have to have both. You have to have these big MCU universe movies being made because they just bring in a ton of money. But without that money, even if it doesn't trickle down the way it should today, you're not going to have these other movies that are unique and interesting and that take the uh, art form forward uh, as well. And it is interesting that the the art forms that are on the edge and rebellious and out there eventually influence the big studio movies. For example, right now, you can't find existentialism, existentialism in movies very much, except in the MCU universe or in the movie originally Free Guy. Uh, it sort of disappeared from the art house, but it used to be that was the art house. Now the art house has moved on. That's moved into the big studio movies, whatever the art house and independent and edgy and out there and uh, is going to be influencing the next big wave of studio or big popcorn movies in the future. It's an endless cycle. Yeah, I was about to say it's an interesting and, and endless cycle. So it's like one in a way, can't live without the other. Right. Yeah, I mean, during the midnight movie phase, everybody was going to midnight movies. And then what happens in the 1990s, all the art and independent films have adapted the midnight movie aesthetic until midnight movies weren't interesting anymore. And then they sort of got up to the big budget uh, movies. It's just uh, the way it is. Right. Right. So uh, talking about a little bit more about your your writing, we were talking, you know, over Facebook Messenger and setting up this podcast. And you mentioned that you also do um, consulting for writing. So what what would be some advice you could give? So say I come to you and I say, hey, I'm an aspiring screenwriter. I want to write a short, a feature, whatever the case may be. What are some pieces of advice that you could give to aspiring screenwriters? Well, that sort of goes into two categories. Uh, I have one set of advice that deals with getting a movie made and getting that movie made. Then I have another set of advice that deals with aesthetics and making the movie work and things like that. But whenever screenwriters, when on Facebook, if anybody ever asks in a screenwriting group, uh, how much do I charge for a screenplay or how much do people get made for selling screenplays i'm going oh this guy's never written a screenplay in their life they have no idea what things are like but i wrote an essay on this for my blog and i said what every new screenwriter should be doing and this is because this is what screenwriter and filmmakers and directors have been doing basically since uh 
Tarantino and Spike Lee, but even more so now, more so in the last five years, uh, five to 10 years. You have to be making your own product. You have to be making your own shorts, web series, features, it doesn't matter. You've got to be making them yourself. Then if you're going to do that, then what I advise every screenwriter to do is get out a pad of paper and pencil or do it on on uh, on on your computer or whatever. Make a list of all the locations that are available for you to film in. Make a list of all actors that you know that can be in a film uh, and also any technical things you have. Make a list and then write a screenplay around that and use the what is now I call the three unities. That's unity of place, keeping it in primarily one location, more or less. Um, a limited number of people over a limited n- amount of time. A day, two days, three days, maybe a week, but all that. And plus a f- fairly simple story. And when you start out, it's usually easier to start with a fairly simple story. And then you start making those movies. Uh, if you listen to Mark Duplass and, and his brother, that's just what they did. They would just make these movies and kept making them and kept making them. And today you have the new filmmakers. I can't name their names off the top of my head always because they're so recent. But the person made Under the Silver Lake, you have Greta Gerwig, with, who now did Little Women. You know, you have the Safdie brothers who now broke through big time with Uncut Gems and just a ton of other films. And that's how they did it. They all started making short films, independent films, very, 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 very cheap films. Now, from aesthetic point of view, I tell people to write your vision. Don't worry about rules, you know, like in books. I've never read a single writing screenwriting book in my life, and I don't plan to. Um, when someone asks, how do I learn how to write a film? I say, see a thousand movies, read a thousand screenplays, see a thousand movies more, read a thousand screenplays more. And somewhere along the line, you're going to figure it out. You know, it's just like novels. I can't imagine anybody saying, I want to write a novel. And they say, well, read these five books on how to write a novel. No, you're told, read a lot of novels. And eventually you're going to figure it out. Uh, but write your vision. Don't Don't try to play by the rules. You know, uh, rules are good when you rewrite. They're terrible when you're writing. So write your vision. Say something about that means something to you. Have a vision of some sort. You know, don't just write what everybody else is writing and imitate that. You've got to do something from inside you. Uh, even if you want to, sometimes people respond, but I want to write for the MCU universe. Well, eventually you may, but this is where you start and you build yourself up. You don't start at the top, except in very, very rare occasions. I think, does that answer that? Oh, yeah, yeah, sure. yeah. No, ab- absolutely. I, no. Get, I get lost when I start talking and talking and talking. No, no, that's that's perfect. And I, I like how you said when you're initially writing, don't worry about the rules write your vision and then you go from there because you know when I wrote my film I think the 10th draft I believe was the final one that I went so you're you're gonna tweak things you're gonna 
rewrite, rewrite, and rewrite, and change, and tweak until you get it to exactly where it is you want. So I would also say don't be discouraged if, you know, like if, if you say have, you know, like a mentor figure or someone that you send your work to and just to get feedback and they have you know, a list of things that you should change, don't get discouraged by that. Just there's keep an old, going. Yeah, there's an old saying that what makes a writer isn't the writing but the rewriting. Yep. If you can't revise, then you'll probably never make it as a writer. Yep. Of course, I revised and I still haven't made it as a writer. So what do I know? <laughs> no, I, I, this, this whole conversation has been, been really enlightening. So uh, it's, it's been great. But um, talk to me a little bit switching over to uh, your podcast, which mm-hmm. as the listeners of this show will be hearing, um, I'm actually going to be on your show uh, as well. So uh, talk to me about your podcast and what made you want to start it. Well, uh, I wanted to start it mainly because uh, I had I was uh, had been a guest on this podcast called the Lambcast, which is the large association of movie movie bloggers. Basically, anybody who has a movie blog can sort of join, and I joined. And then they asked for volunteers to be on the Lambcast, and I kept doing it, kept being a guest, kept being a guest, kept being a guest, and I've been a guest on a regular basis lately and then other friends had started podcasts so i thought okay maybe i should start a podcast and i thought about it for a long time i must have thought about it for a year because i couldn't come up with anything that particularly original or not and finally i got the idea of pop art and i can't say exactly where i got it there's probably three or four different things that happened that made me think of it that I could point to but I think it was more unconscious than conscious and uh, first I asked people to help and couldn't get a, someone else to co uh, be a co-host so I ended up having to do it uh, on my own and I went over to a friend who does podcasts he was my very first guest Donald McKinney III he's one of the people on the Real Short Box podcast and we did the very first one now the basis of pop art and I sometimes think I got it just from the title, Pop Art. I don't know. But my guest chooses a movie from popular culture. And I'll choose a movie from the more art indie classic foreign side of cinema that has a connection to it. And we talk about it. And so he chose uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark. And I chose... Yeah, and I chose Treasure of the Sierra Madre because they're both about these people trying to find this treasure. So I went over to his place so he could show me how to do it. And so by doing the first one there, uh, I learned how to do it and then started getting guests. Um, I COVID hit about a month and a half later. So I learned just at the right time because I couldn't leave. I couldn't go out. Um, I was very fortunate because the work I do on doing coverage, script coverage, I can do from home. But still... Uh, this was, a, in many ways, I guess, a lifesaver because I had to do this podcast and I could do it from home. And um, for a long time, I was doing it once a week. And I don't know, six months ago, that was just getting to me. And I started doing two in a row and then skip a week. And now I'm going every other week because the pressure, the stress was just getting to be too much. But it is... Uh, 
I love all kinds of movies. I just love all kinds of movies. And I like talking about movies and I like comparing movies. And I, um, and it's a very somewhat postmodern thing to do to take these two different kinds of movies and put them together and talk about them. Seems to be fun. Most people who are on it seem to like doing it and think it's an interesting idea, an interesting concept. So um, I think that's it. I think that's why. Yeah. Yeah, and what's great about podcasts is that they can be about so many different things. And I, I tell people if they ask me, you know, what what's the first piece of advice you could give someone who wants to start a podcast? And mine is come up with your concept because coming up, up with your concept is half the battle. And, and come I, up, with, I was going to say, come up with something that you enjoy doing. Yes. Until you find out. And if you enjoy doing it, then maybe you can move on to something else as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. Yeah, no, you're good. And that brings up a great point because it has to be something that you enjoy doing because if you're indifferent, then it's going to show in the product and your audience is going to be able to tell that you don't mm-hmm. care. So why should they care? Yeah, I could have started a, po- a podcast about screenwriting. I don't – that, and I probably would enjoy doing a podcast on screenwriting well enough, but it wasn't something that excited me. Right. I guess it wasn't my bliss. So if your very first podcast, start out with your bliss. Then you may be able to move on to other things that also interest you, but a bit more uh, not blissful, I guess you might say. Right, because the same thing kind of happened whenever I started this show years ago, is that it started as a variety show, because I wanted to just you know, meet new people and hear their stories because I'd always been fascinated by say like, you know, actors or musicians that how did they get to where they are? Like what choices did they make to get to where they currently are in their career? But the movie episodes that I would do always excited me the most. Like I looked forward to doing them more than the others. So in 2019, I revamped the show to focus on film and TV and talk with those who, you work behind the scenes, you know, actors, directors, so on and so forth. And it's also an educational tool for me because I didn't go to film school. So I learn more about how the industry works through doing this show. And I also do segments where I'll talk about, you know, like I'll review a movie or I'll do you know, something that's a little more pop culture, mainstream related so that it appeals to everybody. Right. Yes. Um, you have to go with what you enjoy doing and then uh, there'll always be an audience for something that you enjoy doing there may not be a huge audience but there's always going to be something an audience if you enjoy doing what you're doing absolutely but um, as we start to wrap up here uh, where can people find your podcast and do you have a, a website or social media that you'd like to plug well I have a few things the um, on Facebook not only do I have my own page, but I do have a Howard Kasner script consultation page. Pop art can be found on most streaming channels. Uh, the four I primarily mention, I guess, is Podomatic and Anchor, but also uh, iTunes or Apple. Uh, it's on Spotify. I think it's on Google, all things like that. If you do look me up, it's generally better to look up Howard Kasner than Pop art. Well, there are a couple of, of pop art 
podcast out there. I probably should have called it Howard Kastner's Pop Art, but I didn't, and I'm too lazy to change it right now. So generally, yes, uh, I think most people listen to it on iTunes, Apple. Uh, that's where I think I get the most hits. Fantastic. Uh, yeah. Um, I do have a, web, uh, a blog called Rantings and Ravings, uh, and you can find it under Rantings and Ravings uh, very easily. I talk there about movies and screenwriting. I especially also, since I'm plugging, um, the second edition of my screenwriting book called More Rantings and Ravings of a Screen of a screenwriter. I published that on Amazon and I published a couple of books of short stories. Um, They are The Starving Artist and Other Stories and The Five Corporations and One True Religion and these are sci-fi, supernatural and fantasy short stories. Do I have anything else to plug? I think that, I think that's all the plugs. Oh, fantastic. Howard, thank you so much for taking the time to come on the show. This was great. Thank you. I appreciate being here. Thanks again to Howard Kastner for that wonderful conversation. Be sure to follow him on social media to find out what he'll be up to next. And also be sure to check out his podcast, the Pop Art Podcast. And if you're listening to this show the day it comes out, I'll be appearing as a guest on his show this upcoming Friday. And it's a really cool concept. His guest will pick a film that's on more the mainstream and pop culture side of the film industry. And he'll pick one that has similar themes or you know, similar storylines from the independent and artistic side of the industry. So we talk about the Empire Strikes Back and the Battle for Algiers. And I never seen the Battle for Algiers before, it's an a- but it's an absolutely wonderful movie. It's on HBO Max. If you have that, definitely go check it out. It influenced a lot of filmmakers, and I was so happy that I got to watch it. And it does have some some of the same themes as The Empire Strikes Back, but I can talk more about it, but I think you should go check out the podcast to hear more. And if you want to follow this show on social media, I'm on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Podcast. If you want to subscribe to the show, I'm on Apple Podcast, Spotify, Amazon Music, anywhere you get your podcasts. Just search for The Derek Diamond Experience. And if you could, please leave a review. The more reviews I get, the more visible I become to the podcasting public. You can also follow me on Patreon at patreon.com slash ddiamondpodcast. If you want to vote on most of the content for this show, including the monthly top five list, which we did today, you'll also get to vote on the monthly watch-alongs, which I did a fantastic watch-along of Clerks. Kevin Smith's original movie with my good friend Thomas Carter Rochester. If you're a Patreon subscriber, you can go check out that now. But if not, it just costs $2 a month. If you can't, I understand times are tough these days. But for just $2 a month, you get early access to episodes. For $3 a month, you get to vote on show topics. So there's it costs little to nothing. But again, if you can't, I understand a lot of us are going through financial hardships still because of the pandemic, so totally understand that. But if you also want to follow my good friends, the Unicorn Wranglers, they provide the music for this show. They're on social media at Unicorn Wranglers, and be sure to check out their music on Apple Music, Google Play, and Spotify. That's going to do it for this week's show, so enjoy the rest of your week. Have a safe and fun weekend. Thank you for tuning in to another awesome episode of the Derek Diamond Experience. I'm your host, Derek Diamond, and we'll see you guys back here 
next Thursday.